Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 172 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Today, we're doing a, a, a kind of a TMK Classico episode right now, really going back to some basics. We have talked in the past before. We will talk in the future again, um, uh, not only about you know, venture capital, but the, the way that VCs now act in many ways like central planners in today's economy, right? They, like, there are people making decisions about that, where, you know, vast flows of, of capital. There are people making decisions about technological development. Uh, there are people making decisions about what the future should look like and who it should serve. And in large part in our, in our economy now, um, you know, those decisions are left to uh, venture capitalists, right? They are given outsized influence, outsized capital, um, and outsized power over, over uh, technology, over society, over the future, um, you know, we have central planners in, in today's economy. We have many different central planners in many different sectors. Um, but, I, you know, the, 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 the TMK line is that we need to understand VCs as holding that kind of role. Um, and, you know, by, by that extent, saying, well, if, if, someone, if they can do it, why can't we, right? But as part of that kind of uh, uh, ongoing interest and investigation into the uh, the role and political economy of VCs. On today's episode, Ed is bringing us a, a, a nice special report looking at VCs elsewhere. You know, venture capital, the Silicon Valley model, as it's sometimes called, is a is a, a pretty uniquely American story. It's an American model, but due to its wild success. Um, by whatever metrics we we judge that success, it has been exported globally. We now see VCs operating around the world in ways that often try to, if not outright, mimic the American model. Um, but I think a really interesting case is to look at the the way of uh, that that venture capital and the kind of startup model as well has been uh, exported to, but also adopted to uh, China, right? I mean, we have a long-standing interest in um, the kind of political economy and the technology sector in China. Um, you know, again, I, I am very much of the belief uh, that we are living in now again in a bipolar world um, where there are two hegemons that is no longer a post, you know, post-Soviet uh, collapse unipolar world where America is the only hegemon. Um, I do believe that China is now um, uh, another hegemon which is spreading its own sphere of influence and doing so in a lot of ways um, through technology and infrastructure development and investment um, as well as through many, many other ways, of course. Um, but in 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 an effort to track that, um, Ed has dug up some really interesting stuff around the kind of history um, and development of the VC model in China. So this will definitely be uh, a, a, another Ed-led episode. I'm, I'm going to be learning and reacting just as much as many of you, dear readers, are today. 
Um, so I'll hand it now over to Professor Ed to kind of intro and set us up with what we're going to be getting into today. Hello. So today we're going to be talking about, you know, as as part of our attempt to understand um, capital markets, tech funding, and the, and the construction of channels of funding for the technological industry or for the tech sector for the development of technologies right i think it's really important to understand where the money and capital flows this and i think looking at the history of how china you know state planned economy created markets for venture capital and how the technology industry developed as a result is a pretty good way looking at how central planning and 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 market forces can combine or be or you know or interact with each other or blend with each other to create what you know a pretty dynamic source of funding for tech and and what that does to the type of technologies that are developed. I think that this is also really important because China's VC um, sector is you know is is distinct from uh, those in the rest of that part of the world today, East Asia and from the United States. Um, and is large, right? Um, is about as large and in some years has surpassed, um, the United States, um, share of global VC capital of its own role of, of like the amount of unicorns that it's backing, so on and so forth. And so as a result, it's, it, I think it's pretty interesting and it makes sense to dive into, okay, how did, how is China, you know, how's the state capitalist country created a venture capital market despite, um, being relatively hostile to private or various forms of private enterprise, right? Um, I think uh, probably a key thing is to point out, you know, there are some like, you know, right off the bat, there are really core differences in how venture capital is structured and how it's funded in China and the United States, right? Um, both in how venture capitalists maybe refer to themselves, and their, and their funding processes, but how they actually manifest, right? In the United States, in Silicon Valley, right? They like to think of themselves as being creatively destructive or, you know, as coming around with a disruptive technology that um, finds inefficiencies in a business model or in an industry that leverages network effects and, and, and as a result, upends an old order to, to result in a new one. Whereas in China, a lot of the uh, technological development that's been driven by venture capital has been facilitated to catch up in scientific, military, uh, telecommunication, uh, economic uh, arenas is usually tech that is associated with those domains as well as like the demands of uh, massive metropolitan areas and trying to develop them as part of China's five-year plans, as part of China's development strategy, as part of its industrial policy, right? That also have social and economic goals. Uh, so you'll see that there are differences in what types of firms uh, absorb funding in, inside of um, China and inside of the United States, right? Whereas here, a lot of the VC funding may go to uh, firms that are attempting to disrupt um, maybe like a very, uh, you know, some sort of service, right. And provide an on-demand version of it, or maybe going to business to business, um, offering business to business operations, so on and so forth. There are there in, in China, we'll see that a lot of the, in, uh, funding, the VC funding is going specifically to 
companies with technology that is providing infrastructure for computation, for telecommunication, uh, for data. Um, and that these are the ones that are, uh, they're also responsible for scaling up or for providing even more funds, right? As a lot of the large tech giants and mobile data giants are also um, providing venture capital funding in the modern day. I think looking at this or stepping back from this and thinking about, you know, okay, well, you know, what are the demands and what are the reasons why China's VC market looks different from the way that it, uh, from the United States uh, requires us to kind of step back, you know, and go to the origins of it, right? You know, the United States VC industry is born out both out of um, state-centered um, and state-driven initiatives uh, to create contracts or create funding channels for military contractors uh, to develop scientific innovations for these military contractors uh, to provide a host of uh, technological armaments that are then have this or that element of them commercialized, right? You know, we have seen, you know, since World War II, and we've talked about this extensively, the creation of, you know, or of uh, agencies like the NSF, right, the National Science Foundation, the NIH, the DOD, DARPA, DOE, all instrumental in creating um, key technologies that were later privatized uh, and commercialized by uh, technology companies and telecommunication companies in the United States, right? And these forming the the background or the backbone of America's advanced uh, electronics industry. Um, same for other industries such as the semiconductors, right? And advancing the technology and providing guaranteed revenue streams for these places and subsidizing the R&D. And similarly with China, all right, a, a, a good deal of the early phase of development of its VC um, market or, you know, of the technology that would be funded by these VCs comes from the need to try to construct or develop modern military armaments, right? And investing in a, in a infrastructure that would allow for science and for technology to be advanced relatively rapidly, right? Whether that's because it wants to defend, defend the mainland or contest territorial claims or develop uh, missiles or develop weaponry that can defend specific areas with, um, whether they're in the Taiwan or whether in the South China Sea, right? That similar to the needs of the United States to try to develop and 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 hold on to that and to this like two ocean uh, force projection, right? As well as to have instantaneous, near instantaneous communication with large forces, as we talked about in uh, the episode with Ben Tarnoff on their book about some of the reasons why ARPANET was developed. China here is was interested or has been interested in trying to figure out how it can have force projection that denies key areas from any sort of aggression from neighbors, right? Um, and as a result, has you know developed or has had a lot of resources pointed at developing mis missile missiles and weaponry that can intercept them, right? Or missiles that can also go in range far enough. Uh, to point at possible U.S. or other, you know, aggressors that might be in the region or rivals that might be in the region, right? Um, and so as a result, the infrastructure, again, just like in the United States post-World War II during the Cold War with Soviet Union, has allowed for the development of a defense industry for advanced electronics, 
for semiconductor fabrication and design, uh, for uh, uh, information and communications technology and infrastructure, right? That these have been some of the core drivers or interest um, in places where to put uh, where money should be put, right? And that these have kind of you can think of them as categorized into areas where we're looking at basic research, looking at research and development to try to advance research further. Um, we're looking at attempts to, like the United States, develop and then privatize and commercialize some of these some of these uh, technological offerings, as well as creating infrastructure to train talent, pull talent in, um, do collaborations between. Uh, corporations or enterprises that are created or owned or allowed to operate in markets in China. Uh, and again, as well as like train personnel and develop, you know, you know, talent uh, to staff all of this. China has done a lot of this through uh, agencies such as the Ministry of Science and Technology, the National Natural Science Fo uh, Foundation, um, where these two have been responsible for or in large part been responsible for helping staff or develop some of this infrastructure, right? And have figured more and more prominently in some of the some of the planning documents and industrial policies that China's put forward. This is, I think, part of like a larger sort of transition that while the 1980s is where a lot of these changes start to emerge, right? That this is not also where the modern VC market emerges so much as like, all right, we have, we're creating the infrastructure, right? We're creating programs like the National Key Laboratories Program, um, as well as the Ministry of uh, Science and Technology program, that these, you know, things like this will be able to construct labs, construct research facilities, construct programs for R&D, uh, shared data, um, research networks that would also have innovation and commercialization projects. Uh, the TORCH program is one that I'll get into, which is uh, probably the most important one in China. Um, in developing and facilitating the development of startups and, as a result, technology uh, startups, right? As well as uh, the Spark program, the National New Product program. These two are programs that were also instrumental in helping create the creating the foundation for offer for taking developments and innovations that were created and turning them into products. As well as again militarized applications, um, specifically in the strategic weapons programs, in the R&D program again, in the National Key Technology program. Um, there, all of these synergize or have been attempts to synergize into a comprehensive uh, program over the years since the 1980s that will develop or present, uh, you know, technological startups uh, built on this infrastructure that they've been developing. So the Torch program, right, is probably the one we'll start with where, you know, the Torch program comes to us 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s. Um, and this one was developed by the Ministry of Science and Technology as, as an attempt to, you know, facilitate entrepreneurship, you know, as the United States also had its own analogous programs. And so this program is one that you know, looked at and, and took note of some of the central planning uh, mechanisms that we've been talking, that we've talked about, but was also an attempt to try to create the beginnings of, or create space for the beginnings of a market, right? Where private capital could come in and fund the development of technology, right? So Torch in of itself has, you know, kind of four components 
that are worth focusing on. There's are these innovation clusters. And the idea here is that, you know, depending on where an industry is geographically, depending on where companies in that uh, industry are clustered, there are advantages, you know, because of the geography. There are clusters where more capital is going to be um, concentrated, right? Where more of the talent is going to be, where conditions might facilitate, where there are more social networks, so on and so forth. If it comes to mind, you know, New York for finance, Silicon Valley for tech, Hollywood for movies, and so forth. That these clusters are not in of themselves, like, they don't have to only happen naturally, right? You can create and facilitate the creation of clusters, uh, but mainly by directing resources and incentivizing people to move to these places. And that you can then use these clusters to give you an advantage over other clusters. And so here, the innovation clusters are an attempt by China to try to create hubs, either of startups, hubs of tech capital, hubs of talent, um, to compete with other clusters of tech across the world and in the country in itself, right? So Torch Program has innovation clusters that are created with these national science and technology industrial park, as well as software parks and productivity promotion centers. Um, the first one, I'm going to butcher this, but it's a science park that was in Beijing, right? A science and technology industrial park in Beijing that serves as the hub of is now analogous, I guess, to China's, um, or was analogous to China's Silicon Valley, right? Um, here, it's where you creating these software and industrial parks, creating, a, uh, creating software uh, centers and productivity centers and promotion centers is analogous to um, what happened in California in the post-World War II era during the Cold War, when campuses, universities, were incentivized or sites of uh, incentivizing corporations to come in and open up research labs, open up uh, headquarters, open up parks, essentially, to try to blend the lines between uh, private and public research, right? Ben Tarnoff talks a little bit about this, as does Paris Marx in their upcoming book about how you ha would have corporations come in and by virtue of setting up their uh, gain access to be able to collaborate, gain access to more of the students and the researchers and the engineers, but also be uh, in a position to influence uh, people who are going into the fields or you know other related fields, policymakers, uh, tech leaders, uh, new startups, and uh, yet to be formed. Right, uh, all in proximity to each other, all clustered with one another, all benefiting from close you know exchange of, of data, resources, and people. And so relatively early on, China's, you know, set up these industrial parks where corporations would settle down within them across the country, specializing in specific fields and uh, in, in specific sub uh, industries of electronics uh, and integrated circuits and pharmaceuticals and energy production and telecommunications and medical devices and electronics. And as a result, uh, you would see two trends develop where this, the, these sort of these steps, the, the uh, technology and science industrial parks would uh, over time have a huge contribution to China's GDP, but also account for the lion's share, if not the majority of R&D spending um, in the country because the torch programs, again, was f 
in these innovation clusters operate on the theory that if you cluster, if you center and artificially incentivize people to center resources in specific regions, then you'll boost productivity and innovation. And as a result, also, if you have these clusters centered, you can also better organize collaboration between researchers and between the private sector or the developing private sector, right? You could have attempts to facilitate cooperation or collaboration between uh, research agencies, between small and large businesses, between tech firms, and build a national network of this uh, that was built on this sort of premise where you could have consulting with one another, testing of products, you could have promotion of new products, you could also have uh, training of, of uh, people with new methods, new technologies, you could have incubators, you could share knowledge generated by working in the field with people who have yet to enter it and so on and so forth, right? These are all things that more or less are familiar to the industry today um, in Silicon Valley, but nonetheless had to be constructed um, as part of the infrastructure for allowing for China's uh, VC market to emerge, right? Yeah, I'll I'll jump in real quick just to say that you know th- thinking about like the the you know these science, technology, and industrial parks. This is now, as you were just saying as well, this is pretty common, commonly accepted practice, especially in like urban policy. Um, so now this is be- there's become a really huge trend. Uh, uh, in cities around the world of trying to create these like innovation districts, right? Which are uh, exactly this meant to create like spaces where there's clusters of startup activity. There's some investment, some, you know, big august companies like an IBM or a Microsoft or a Google might have an office there as a kind of like center mass for other startups to kind of form and orbit around. You know, and the, the city, you know, city governments, um, state governments provide funding and investment for these innovation districts because they are seen as, you know, ways of creating like little small, uh, startup ecosystems that then feed into economic growth, right? Like this is a pretty now like well accepted, although often talked about in like these urban policy circles as like a new, um, kind of trend in, in urban governance and urban planning, uh, around the world. Like I, there's, they're in Melbourne, they're in Sydney, they're all over Europe, they're all over the UK, they're all over the United States. You see them in, in like India, uh, you know, you see them in South America, right? Like they, they're all over the place, but a lot of them are quite new. I think what's, what's really interesting, uh, as you're walking us through this torch program and this one, prong um focusing on the the science technology industrial parks uh is on one hand the the fact that these were you know china was doing this in the 80s right so this is not new for china but it's also the scale and specialization at at which it's happening in china right it's not it's not like Shenzhen is, you know, trying to have like a little innovation district with a bunch of startups doing whatever, right? Um, it's, it's more like this is all centrally planned such that the scale is on the size of like a city, right? Like it's not a district. It's like a city is basically this innovation park. Uh, and, and the specialization here as well, you know, it's, it's, it's not just like, 
create some conditions for entrepreneurial founders to create startups about whatever they want. It's like, no, you're creating conditions to create um, uh, uh, artificial comparative advantages and specialization. So it's like, uh, you know, Donghu and Wuhan is going to focus on optoelectronics. Right, like Shenzhen and Shanghai is going to focus on integrated circuits. Uh, you know, Shenzhen is going to focus on telecommunications. Tianjin is going to focus on biotech. Right, like it's like hyper specialized uh, industrial parks too, which you can only really get through this kind of not uh, planning, but planning on such a huge national scale. Like I think the one of the big differences here is that a lot of these urban innovation districts elsewhere tend to happen at a city at a local level. And so there's not a lot of a, there's not a lot of funding and there's not a lot of ability to do uh, like big central planning. It's the fact that like China is doing this at a like national level. Um, so they're dumping a lot of money into it, but also uh, exerting a lot of uh, planning power over how these things set up. Um, and, and it's like, you know, there, there are dozens and dozens of these in, in, uh, instances in China, whereas I think in the U.S., I can really only think of like two major, three, maybe three major instances, right? So you obviously got Silicon Valley. You've got, uh, I forget the name of it. It's named after a highway in Boston, but Boston has a huge biotech yeah. sector. So, so there's a lot of biotech innovation and investment that happens centered around Boston. So they've kind of specialized. And then you've got Silicon Alley, which is New York trying to do, uh, you know, this kind of stuff as well. Um, and, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> like as far as like big major hallmark, you know, uh, we're we're not just talking about these like little innovation districts that are like in Austin or in Chicago or something like that, right? You know, that's pretty much it. And and those are I think sometimes talked about as organic because they're not as like obviously centrally planned. Although I think Silicon Valley absolutely was, as we've talked about in our discussions of the history of their, uh, you know, b based in um, military technology and, and funding. There is just like this, it's really important, I think, to note the the difference here in, in what China is doing in terms of the the for how long they've been doing it, the scale at which they're doing it, and the specialization um, that they're doing for each of these uh, uh, industrial parks through this torch program. China's pouring billions and billions of dollars into the steps as a part of these five-year plans um, that it has, which you know we might talk about later. Again. We love a five-year plan, right. <laughs> or in another episode where they are, you know, development strategies and industrial plans for development of the economy and what sort of social or economic goals they might have. The the, the number of steps also you know, kind of stagnated for a while and uh, hovering around, you know, 50 to 55 until uh, the early 2000s when it then tripled um, and got us up to 156 by 200, uh, by 2017. I was about to say 217. <laughs> um, you know, part of, part of the shifts for why there was such a massive jump was uh, that, you know, China joined the uh, World Trade Organization um, in 2006, 2007, I believe. And, you know, this coincided with the 11th uh, five-year plan, which 
ByteDance, you know, kind of focused on a sort of rapid ramping up of the steps and providing the infrastructure for developing, you know, technological development, startups, for leveraging external resources and like more developed, urbanized Eastern coasts, uh, and by transferring some resources or making up for the lack of capital in, you know, more rural parts of the country to the West. It's hard to think of the scale, like there are millions of companies that are registered at these steps, tens of thousands of them, which are, you know, high tech enterprises, which are like companies that are designated as, you know, specifically at the frontier of the tech sector um, and are given tax breaks. They're given uh, preferential you know, treatment, you know, sometimes some preferential political treatment, but in, but in general also considered to be a core and integral part of the economy and the sector, right? Responsible for creating, producing, exporting a significant amount of China's exports, right? But in 2017, the the STIPs were producing about 20% of all of China's exports, you know, some $478 billion, you know, that it, like it's, a, it's been a wildly successful policy in, in the sense of trying to concentrate economic activity around a few specific regions and then try, and trying to use that to facilitate cooperation or collaboration and, and advanced development. But also at the same time that, you know, as we talked about, geography can create competitive advantages and disadvantages. If you look at the tech clusters, most of them are such that Coastal China has the largest number of them. Coastal China has the largest number of tech ones. Uh, they are concentrated in the most urban, the most metropolitan, the most dense regions. Uh, Shenzhen, Beijing. I mean, uh, th- these are the the areas where you will also see a lot of the a lot of the most uh, valuable unicorns, the most well known ones, Baidu, Tencent, you know, uh, corp- companies that generate, you know, hundreds of billions cumulatively of uh, dollars um, in revenue, sales, exports, products. But this leads us then to the second prong of the program, which is the technology business incubators. Now, these things are uh, places where, you know, the high tech is supposed to be developed ostensibly, right? Within the clusters, within the clusters, these are where the companies actually physically reside. And this is where you get physical space. This is where you get discounted or free rent. This is where, similar to the corporate and university parks, you have access to the uni- research universities. You have access to the students, right? You have access to the data, and you, have, and you can collaborate with them. There are thousands of them across the country that function, some as regional, some as local, but also as national incubators or organizing clusters of, of national networks that foster or facilitate uh, private enterprise and privately run firms being a part of the network. So there, there are incubators that are embedded inside of these universities, and they focus on specific types of research and according specific types of engineers or scientists to do that research. There are industry-specific incubators that might focus on biomedicine, that might focus on material sciences, that might focus on semiconductors. There's also, as we talked about, there's a kind of focus on specifically advanced electronics uh, incubators across the clusters in China. Now, there are also another prong of the TORCH program, which is funding, right? The, uh, the China's InnoFund. And, you know, there are analogs for 
government funding programs, which have provided this sort of seed funding. Um, there's the America Seed Fund, right, which is the small business innovation research and the small business technology transfer programs. And now these are programs that kind of like encourage small, medium-sized businesses to uh, take part in federal programs and federal research and research and development programs so that they can find, develop and commercialized products, right? And so contracts are awarded to try to push the frontier of technological development and figure out a way to profit from the development of some sort of technology. And and this is a program that the United States has on the premise that, okay, like if we can, the goal of, if we're going to use government funding and government intervention in these markets, it should be able to help companies take research we've already done and figure out a way to make it economically viable, to make it profitable, to help generate economic growth. And so in China, the Inno Fund, which was set up in 1999, operates on a similar premise, uh, offering loans, uh, grants, uh, equity investments uh, in, an, in a bid to take the basic research and figure out ways to make uh, to construct a market fit. Sometimes they're offering, and sometimes they're doing this as is done in the United States because a firm is too small and hasn't proven itself capable of actually taking something to the market. Sometimes it's too small to garner the attention of other funding mechanisms and other uh, funders. Sometimes they're uh, they're too small to try to ha- you know be able to sustain some of the cost, right? Even if like you might not have a track record, but you also can't actually afford to be involved in whatever, you know, sector of research. One example might be, you know, semiconductor fabrication or manufacturing or design, right, which are high capital businesses and don't really lend themselves to anything other than a large state-backed enterprise. You know, that would be an example of a firm where it doesn't make sense for money to be thrown at it unless we're talking, you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars today, at least. Um and so these sort of projects, right, are to try to push and develop firms and startups in a direction where they'll be able to not only have a product that's viable, but find other sources of financing uh, that will allow them to sustain themselves and develop into more mature firms. This is another one of the prongs in which we could say there's a lot of overlap between or there's some overlap between venture capital and in the United States and in uh, China, right? Where the, these are, you know, kind of pools of these are pools of money that are available to try to facilitate technological development, but there are also, you know, pools of cash that financiers typically, you know, sneer at because it's state, it's a state bureaucratic process. It's kind of, you know, more concerned with volume and ensuring that there are multitudes of startups that are getting this funding, these grants, these loans uh, to take various products to the market, which kind of funnily enough, I mean, that is the model of VC to have this lottery ticket driven thing where you invest in a hundred firms and, you know, one of them will provide uh, returns that justify the, maybe nine of them will provide returns that justify those nine in of themselves. But as a result, you know, we can see the three prongs that we've talked about so far have been, okay, how do we provide funding to businesses that are interested in being involved in the technology sector, but actually don't have the capacity to because they're too small, because they haven't really figured out how to take something to the market, because they don't have a track record, um, or simply because they're trying to get into an industry that is way too expensive for them to get to at their size and age. Uh, We have... The question of, okay, how do you leverage research that the state has already pushed and developed and, and realized into something that 
firms can build on and again that the state can continue to push the the boundary on how do you constantly push forward the research and development in science uh, and technology and then also how do you facilitate cooperation and create clusters of development that will sustain themselves also and that might also create independent modes of financing right that might create independent training centers that might create independent economic activity training technological development research uh, that can facilitate the growth of more entrepreneurs, right? Or more venture capitalists or more startups. Sorry for anyone who's listening to this and has, has to hear me speak like a VC. That's what we got to do. We got, we got crawl inside the VC's mind. Yeah. You know, we have to, we have to take on their thoughts for ourselves. We have to become the VC so we can understand right. the VC so we can tear down the VC. <laughs> yeah. This is a very good faith sort of episode because uh, uh, there will be another episode engaging this with a specific lens, right? Because um, it's it's too much to do both the history and a lefty critique of it, but it is good to do the history so that, you know, it's something to digest and think about. And that brings us then to another prong and pr- the last prong, right? Of the, of the torch program, which is that you, you know, they had this adventure guiding fund, um, you know, and this was an attempt to try to, ensured that VCs would funnel more money right into the into these startups. And so the venture guiding fund takes some money and invests it into VC funds, co-invests with some of the VCs, uh, even subsidizes some of their in gambling, right? So there's a there's a massive fund of funds which has about you know less than twenty five percent of an equity in some in VC firms and there's a fixed rate of return. Then you also have the co investment mechanism we talked about where you're matching up to fifty percent of other VC firms equity investments right. And then you have uh, this sort of a subsidy pro- program for VCs right where you know we get to see some state that state socialism that people are talking about <laughs> but uh <laughs> where uh, the 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 state is saying hey you know uh if you really don't want to invest in these then we'll just compensate you for investment and we'll compensate you for the loss and then we also have grants right where the fund is going to provide grants to ensure that startups or getting reward that if a startup has a VC firm, right, that's interested and invested and involved, then you also get additional grants, right? So that maybe you're not so reliant on that. We we love to see our communist state socialize and backstop the loss of venture capitalists. <laughs> don't we? Don't we love to see that? <laughs> I think it's work and it works out well um, for everybody involved. Uh, well, when I say everybody, I mean, you know, the venture capitalists and the state firm, right? Because the theory is if you subsidize the allocation of capital and incentivize allocation of capital to places where it might not otherwise go, if you're doing it in a, fr- in, to places that are clustered, if you're doing it within an infrastructure and a framework that is collaborative, um, and supposed to be conducive to the generation of, you know, specific industries and sub industries, then, you know, the subsidy program makes sense because it, it should have returns that are better than a, than the VC firm might, right? Because you're generating revenue and you're generating technology that will, you can leverage to catch up to other countries and other sectors of the economy, which will then allow you to maybe procure their technology, right? Or advance it even further. And all of this is important to China because it wants to catch up again in economic 
in economic uh, sectors. It wants to catch up in defense and being able to create area of denial, uh, weaponry, naval military uh, forces, aval, uh, I, I mean, uh, av- aviation technology, um, but also wants to develop the backbone of what will be its ICT industry, right? And all of this more or less is, you know, puzzle pieces and part of that industrial policy or the beginnings of that industrial policy uh, to create and facilitate the creation of a tech sector and funding for the tech sector and dynamic growth of that tech sector independent of the planners. planners. And now this brings us to kind of a, the birth or the ascension, right, of this um, this VC system, right, and how, and the role that it's played in developing tech markets. The shift comes along with market liberalizations of China, right, and the and the and the moves to try to relax some of the some of the earlier forms of central planning, um, which China reverted to or in, or, or created new forms of within the 21st century, but was starting to loosening in the 1990s. And so we've talked about that earlier infrastructure that they built up and the funding for the infrastructure and for economic activity, uh, jumping off of the infrastructure. And here we start to see research and development. We start to see universities. We start to see the seed capital that are, that are creating a sort of startup economy, right? For techs, for tech firms. And so as a result, by the 1990s, you're starting to see the vast majority of all the funds going to startups that are centered in Beijing, connected to universities, right? Connected to universities, connected to STIPs, connected to the, the government clusters and networks that have been set up to have a flow of, of uh, capital go to technology firms who will then produce products, which will then generate economic activity, which will then also yield new breakthroughs and innovations that will then uh, lead to new startups that will then yield to and also new capital flows, which will, you know, and so on and so forth. This also ideally is supposed to come with some, you know, some shifts and waves and of reforms to loosen capital, you know, strict capital controls so that other forms of financing can now be encouraged too, right? So you have banks getting involved in the process. You have the establishment of even more technology and economic zones, right? Uh, you have the introduction and in the, in, of, uh, of foreign capital flows from venture capital funds, right? You have the establishment of VC funds that are run by the government, specific by regions, by uh, zones, by the national, um, by national bodies themselves, right? The second wave, this wave that's focused on the banks, is what becomes more important in the later phases of the Torch program. Because the program was such that by 1990, by 1991, you start to see more than half of the Torch startups are getting their funding uh, from banks. And that these this financing is allowing them to expand into new markets expand their product their production and the capacities and also allow more startups to emerge that might not have otherwise because again they were too capital starved or they were too small and they didn't have enough talent they didn't have a track record that would incentivize the, that first wave of VCs and to invest in them right without government incentives or urging at first 
or and this is in contrast with the earlier wave, that first wave of the tech startups where all they really had or relied on was the seed funding. And this also allowed for the technology zones and the STIPs and the incubators to take up to, you know, kind of expand even further because now you have even larger pools of capital to back. And so this then leads us again to like, you know, you have a, another wave, a third wave also coming from the fact that the STIPs that the, the IBITs, you know, these have now formed also places for new capital to flow uh, to support new businesses. You have collaboration between the business incubators, startups, and local governments, right? You have local governments that are getting tax revenue from the startups and contributing to local development by hiring people inside of there, right? Which then allows them to, again, incentivize banks to further to see them as part of a development strategy or as a way to get returns or a good amount of returns on investment in tech uh, startups, right? If they're contributing to local technology zones, if they're contributing to STIPs and so on and so forth. But you can't have just one program um, be the only source of capital. And you can't have the creation of a capital-driven uh, form of of technological of technological development if you don't have enough capital for it, right? And China and China China's capital markets, China's uh, banks, China's uh, government they didn't have the cash or didn't have the the capital to just throw at solely uh, the development of this technology sector through the torch program, right? And so a few hurdles had to be you know jumped here. The main one is that there needed to be legitimization of private venture capital firms, right? Or of some vehicle that would do the equivalent work of a venture capital firm. Um, And so here we start to see those sort of local government-financed VCs or the VC firms. Then we start to see university-backed VCs um, as well as state agency VCs. You know, these are all groups, enterprises, formations that are not operating as traditional VC firms where they're seeing a specific type of return for the investors, but seeing, but they're plugged into the national policy for achieving objectives, development strategies, and industrial goals, um, and economic objectives and social outcomes, right? That in, but also still using venture capital and, um, and, and concerns about growth and economic activity and profit orientation and designing and planning these markets. And so one of the main ones that emerges, uh, well, one of the main VC firms that emerges is a foreign one uh, called IDG Capital Partners, right? Which emerges and enters China in the 1990s. But the introduction of, of uh, foreign firms, of foreign venture capital firms like IDG, allow and, and send signals that private capital flows from outside the country can also start to come into the country. And that incentivizes a shift from venture capital being uh, solely something that is a government activity, right, to being a type of economic activity that needs to happen to support and develop China's technologies, right? And it comes to us when we start to see in 1998, uh, corporate-backed VCs are established, right? And they'll start to allow uh, them to come in in mass, there's a report here that's cited in the in some of the research that we're, we're using by Steve Blank. Well, Steve Blank's research cites and points to um, an OECD report 
that kind of documents uh, China's innovation policy, specifically when it started to let in corporate-backed VCs that were foreign, as well as establish them themselves, I think is worth looking at. To you know, kind of swim through it really quickly because I think that we're uh, we're not coming up on time, but I do want to keep this as like a sort of short intro. Um, all of this to say that China's attempts to create the VC market in the beginning and some of the larger, more general elements of it we've been talking about have been concerned with how do we create one? How do we generate? infrastructure for technological development, how to create financing for it, and then how do we figure out a way to introduce private enterprise and private capital flows without ceding control of that whole system to them. And so so each step of the way has been an attempt to develop new phases of funding channels that will allow technology giants to develop, have indigenous corporations come dominate specific industries um, and, f- and also figure out ways to do venture capital in ways that might look fami- unfamiliar to, um, to Western observers. Uh, there are funds today where they still are operating on those sort of three prongs, as well as introduction of these foreign firms, of offshore firms, U.S.-based firms, European firms. There has been a long sort of like... Con- I think complicated history that has been complicated one by the or the entry of China into the World Trade Organization in 2006, but also by uh, moves that it made in the aftermath of the Great Financial Crisis, right? Uh, to try to impose specific structures in which foreign firms would be able to invest um, in China, um, whether it was with dollars, with renminbis, renminbis, as well as the type of firms that were allowed to use dollars and allowed to use renminbis in the in the country itself or outside the country. You know, I think one example here that was you know commonplace in the mid 2000, 2000s or early two thousand tens were these renminbi funds, right? Uh, renminbis are the you know China's official currency, and so foreign typically if a foreign fund wanted to invest in China. Would have to and 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 it wanted to use a fund with dollars. It needed to do all these sort of inf- instruments and, and vehicles uh, and offshore listings. While the renminbi funds would allow you to have less restrictions on what industries you can invest in. Um, there was less oversight. There was less stricter, tighter control, and as a result, more freedom for the capital flow. Again, like another attempt at a government policy to in, in incentivize using the currency itself, right, and use, and trying to and trying to impose a little bit of control on the capital flowing into the country. Now, the the renminbi funds are owned by these Chinese investors domestically, but the foreign ones are partially are not are fully owned sometimes by non Chinese investors, and both of them are Chinese corporations or operating under Chinese corporate law. There are other. There's also the creation of you know either stock exchanges for these startups, the creation of uh, Banks and 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 loan instruments specifically for these startups as well. An attempt to like in the in the Chinext, which was uh, China's uh, you know basically Nasdaq, like a talk a, a tech heavy stock index. Uh, try to incentivize um, and reward essentially funds that were trading in and investing in renminbi funds. You know, all of this forming again like that sort of basic attempt to introduce what might appear to be, I think, as a, f- a free market, but it's still very much, how do we how do we allow in capital into the system without letting it dominate the direction in which the capital goes? 
Yeah, and this happens in a lot of uh, like sometimes bizarre ways. Like you know, we're going through a history now, but if we if we jump a little bit, you know, for for decades, one way that um, China has kind of liberalized capital flows into particularly the tech sector, uh, like the, the the domestic tech sector for foreign capital, is through these like these special kind of holding companies called variable interest entities, uh, which you know are uh, uh, essentially, you know, a Chinese variable interest entity, you know, is usually based in a, like a tax haven, like the Cayman Islands, and are basically holding companies um, for a particular uh, group of tech, uh, of Chinese tech firms, or, or maybe even just one, right? So, you know, Alibaba, uh, JD, right? Like these big companies, these big Chinese tech companies have these VIEs, these variable interest entities, which allow, uh, in theory, uh, U.S. shareholders to invest in these Chinese companies, circumventing foreign investment rules um, that forbid uh, foreign investors from uh, any ownership over key sectors like tech. Um, while you know, so so giving American, you know, it's largely U.S. investors the ability to hold shares in a company. Um, not own, not have any ownership, but uh, be entitled to economic benefits from the growth of that company by actually holding shares in a uh, a VIE a, that's a holding company. So you know, it's a, it's a pretty like it seems like a really esoteric and complex kind of workaround for how foreign investors can not have direct ownership, but can have direct entitlement to economic benefits flowing from. A Chinese tech company, um, and this has largely been—you know—it's not as if this is unknown, right? Or it's not as if like the Chinese state doesn't know this is happening. You know, the the kids are getting one over on the on dad. Uh, you know, the Chinese state knows this happens and they tolerate it um, for now. Although there have been a lot of rumblings in the last year of you know, a, as we've talked a lot about on TMK, the way that. Uh, um, China has recently, um, through uh, you know, Xi Jinping uh, in particular, having interest on cracking down in the tech sector, there's been a lot of rumblings over the last year of uh, the CCP, um, the Central Party, uh, also cracking down on these variable interest entities um, as a way for like foreign direct investment and venture you know into into these tech companies. But um, all that is to say, just a, a another kind of added wrinkle here. You know, the Wall Street Journal calls this a uh, the tech investment paradox, right? The kind of like existence of these VIEs. Um, but in reality, I think if we contextualize it, it doesn't seem so paradoxical, but just seems like uh, it's another way that China has um, kind of liberalized its tech investment VC kind of market, but done so in a in, in its own in its own way, not done so in this kind of like uh, structural adjustment IMF induced shock kind of way of just like throw everything open, but over the course of like decades of of kind of evolutionary liberalization in the sector that has come to make it look like you know it is in this way VC with Chinese characteristics. Exactly, I think, and it is fascinating to consider because I think that China's you know a real a real question to ask is how much of China's success is due to specific elements that we can trace out. You know, Harvey 
uh, David Harvey's work, I think, is a good example if I can attempt to really um, hammer this out, right? And one way to do that is really to just like ask China in of itself has developed like a pretty complex industrial policy. And that industrial policy isn't only with tech, but it is, but tech is an important part of it. I mean, because China has the world's like second most advanced high tech sector. And it also has a pretty large, the largest manufacturing sector, the largest internet, right? So it is a huge chunk of the digital and physical world and the technological development that goes on in, in those industries. And so the, and so the reforms that happened in creating its market economy, as well as the remnants of the state planning apparatus and their evolution from 78 to 2006, and then the 2006 to beyond, you know, are pretty important because China has, you know, China has venture capital firms and state-owned enterprises, right? China has special economic zones, and then and then these technology and science and these science and technology industrial parks that it has these five-year plans. Uh, I think it's on its 15th, 14th now. It has uh, organizing principles around which it drives the economy or tries to or tries to act in organizing, deflating, inflating various industries. The tech sector is probably the most dynamic part, one of the most dynamic parts of China's economy, and is a part that at both it has market reforms and like state-centered or centrally center, centrally planned elements that like aren't really familiar but are interesting, right? So I think that is like probably the first part of what is, what are some of the basic elements that drive China's tech sector and the VC and the development of VC funding behind it. Right. And then the next time, next time when I do a report on this, we'll probably try to talk more about, uh, what, you know, the, the 2000 to 2006 period and then post financial crisis, right? Because the 2000 to 2006 period is when it starts to have more of the foreign capital flows and starts changing laws to accommodate for these flows, which we talked about a little bit with the Remimbi funds, as an example, the VIEs, as you've talked about. But also because of the great financial crisis, China, and because the ascension of some of the tech firms, China changes and kind of like doubles down on state planning mechanisms that it hasn't in, in a way that it hasn't done for a long time and sees some of the most impressive gains and growth of the entire uh, period of its mar- of its post Zedong economy, right? And these are and the most some of these most impressive gains are like despite venture capital or flying in the face of principles that might incentivize venture capital, um, but rely on a different type of central planning than like the more traditional capitalist one. Folks, we, we love we love these reports from Professor Ed, special investigations. Uh, there is so much more interesting stuff to get into around all of this. We're run, we're we're up on time now. We are endeavoring to have more uh, reasonably timed episodes instead of sprawling <laughs> sprawling masses of of uh, two hour long <laughs> episodes for our own sanity and for yours. Um, and this this is. Uh, but this has been really, really great uh, kind of intro history, contextualization uh, of tech investment and VC in China. They're, you know, really bringing us up to 
um, kind of the, the modern period, give or take a, a decade. Um, and so we've got a lot more to get into in terms of yeah, understanding how the contemporary uh, kind of uh, VC and tech investment um, uh, ecosystem, to use that word, operates in China as well as what's to come next, because there are there are big changes on the horizon. Uh, you know, this is very much a kind of uh, an evolutionary process. I mean, as we've seen over the last, you know, since the 80s, right, with the creation of the science and technology industrial parks, um, the torch, you know, as part of the, the, the big torch program, right, the kind of the, the world's largest experiment in engineering innovation, taking the reins and directing it in certain, uh, certain ways. Um, and so lots more to get into there. Um, but we'll leave this episode at that point. Uh, I'm sure we will get back into this, um, very, very soon, um, in the near future. So. And perhaps even on our Patreon, we can find that, uh, you know, those premium episodes on patreon.com slash this machine kills where we regularly do, well, we do a, another premium episode every single week, but we are regularly now doing um, kind of two parters, right? Where the second part is on Patreon. We've got an ongoing book club series where we're running up on the end of the dawn of everything, just a massive undertaking, uh, that, that we've been working on all year, um, coming up on the end of that book. Uh, and, and lots more great stuff going on on there. So subscribe $5 a month, patreon.com slash this machine kills. Um, find us there or find us next week on the free feed. Until then, see ya. Goodbye.